Thank you for listening to this podcast that is part of a series dedicated to the 14th edition of Fonts Event. The theme of this year's event is High Reward, High Risk. My name is Maraya Groen, and in today's episode, under the pressure of visible climate change and the upcoming UN Climate Conference in Glasgow, investors are getting ready for real change. Also, recent legal investigations in the US into the validity of sustainability claims of a large German asset manager underline how complicated ESG investing can be. According to my guest of today, Paul Schofield, ESG investing requires a deep understanding of what companies contribute to which ESG goals. Paul is head of the NNIP Sustainable Equity Team and responsible for the European Sustainable Equity Strategy. We'll discuss how climate change, climate politics and regulations are affecting industries and investors. And we'll take a closer look at the way ESG data can be used in the portfolio selection process. Paul, welcome. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Well, thank you very much for having me today. Paul, currently a lot of ESG investing is about the E and about the G. And you've told our editorial team here that you are also very much driven by the S, so the, the social factors. Could you tell us a bit more about that drive? Yeah, yes, yeah, sure. Well, look, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say that the social element of ESG is the one I'm particularly driven by, but it's certainly the area of the three that tends to slip into the background of the conversation in, in my experience. So, so I like to keep the conversation going. Now, that conversation these days is significantly driven by the E, as, as we'll come on to, and, and climate change in particular. And I suppose it's pretty obvious why that is. But that conversation is ongoing. There's lots of things happening in that area. I know I can play my part both as an individual and as an asset manager, but probably the most significant steps must come from elsewhere, particularly governments and regulators. So I'm sure we'll discuss that in a minute or two. Um, the S, however, is interesting because it's the area that deals with with us most closely as human beings, how we feel, how we're treated as individuals, how we kind of fit into wider society. Um, and so I do try and talk that up a little bit. The pandemic we're all living through has brought some of these topics right to the forefront, issues like mental health or inequality, um, they've both taken a significant turn for the worse in the last couple of years. And hence, you know, if those issues were significant pre-pandemic, then they're certainly very, very important to dis- discuss now. Mm. Looking, definitely looking, looking forward to discussing all of that with you, Paul. Um, I already said in the beginning, in November, the UN's 26th conference of the parties, the COP26, will be held in, in Glasgow. What are your expectations for this um, event? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a tricky one. Well, I, I try to be a, a, an optimist, as optimistic as possible. And hence, you know, I very much hope that the event is successful. But what, what constitutes success at something like this? Well, I hope uh, at the conclusion of the event, the world's nations have all tabled science-backed commitments to keep global warming to, to one and a half degrees. And, and I think on the whole, we'll probably get those commitments. But making promises and sticking to them are two very separate Two different issues. things. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and as we all know, sometimes politics, as well as other things, perhaps get in the way. So so for me, the event is itself important, but how those plans are implemented in the years after the event that are probably more important. I guess the eyes of the world will be on the policymakers, and, and we certainly hope that they, they can deliver, but you know, only time will tell. Right, right. Now, Paul... EU legislation is aimed at limiting pollution and CO2 emissions. How does that affect investors? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the legislation uh, you, you refer to actually stems from the Paris Agreement, which came from a previous COP event um, five or six years ago. And, and that agreement itself was probably the most important climate change policy or treaty that we've seen so far. Um, it's important stems from the fact that all nations were brought together and, and, and they, they sort of have a common cause ready to combat climate change and, and um, intensify efforts to bring about that sort of sustainable low carbon future. Now, um, for us as investors, this can mean many things, but supporting the energy transition that needs to take place away from fossil fuels and and creating and developing Paris-aligned or, or net-zero solutions for our clients are probably the two most important areas. Um, those products aren't very easy to construct, as there's several different pathways to achieve the Paris Agreement, um, and they're also innovative technologies that will help us on this journey that we don't even know about yet. Mm. Um, and if you couple this with the fact that many countries' current environmental policies are not yet consistent with the Paris Agreement, then this all muddies the waters for, for investors more generally. Um, I suppose investors need to better contemplate climate risk when analysing potential investments uh, and perhaps think twice before investing in companies that are more exposed to environmental risks unless those companies have a clearly defined and plausible pathway to improvement over time. That being said, as an investor, how do you look at the current composition and state of the European energy sector? Yeah, well, the, the European energy landscape of today does look quite different to the sector of maybe 10, 5, 10 years ago, as, as that renewable energy um, in particular has grown to be a very investable subsector. And hence, the opportunity to, to invest potentially outside of traditional fossil fuels is an option now, a real option. The long-running discussion within my world, if you like, in, in my space, um, is whether to completely eliminate fossil fuels from portfolios. And, and people, investors, tend to have quite strong views on this subject one way or the other. From my perspective, the, dis the decision isn't as clear-cut as it may, uh, may appear. Yes, I believe demand for oil, for example, will uh, reduce in, in years to come as alternative energy sources continue to evolve and develop and um uh, but I asked myself the question, is the demand for oil going to reduce to zero? And, and frankly, the answer is no. no. Oil and gas will definitely remain an important part of the energy mix, particularly in developing countries. And hence, for me, it's better to, to not fully exclude these companies from your investable universe. By doing that, you're effectively pushing them into a dark corner of the room where they will continue to do a very sort of technically difficult and sometimes dangerous job um, in, in the shadows. Mm. I'd much rather we kept the spotlight on them um, and encourage their, th those, those companies to do their job in a, in a much more environmentally friendly way. The energy majors will play a very important part in the overall en energy transition. And, um, and, you know, in many cases they should and indeed are shifting the mix of their business to something more in keeping with a lower carbon world. Many use the, the huge cash flows that they, they, um, they generate to invest in greener energy sources, for example, hydrogen or bio, biofuels. Um, mm. And slowly and surely, their revenue streams will become greener and greener. They can't do it overnight. I think that's important to state. Mm. And even if they could do it overnight, the world, as it currently is set up right now, couldn't cope with the oil taps being switched off overnight. So to encourage an orderly and sort of sensible transition over time seems to me to be the right way to go for these businesses. Right. So then basically as an investor, you're actually helping these companies get more greener by staying invested in them. That's what you're saying. Uh, absolutely. And, and that's where yeah. people like us can engage with companies and just go on that journey with them, um, you know, to, to set out our, our goals for them, if you like, 
Um, but don't expect too much too soon mm. because these are big companies and, and they genuinely have got the message. Right. Uh, but it's just the pace of that transition that is something we need to just, just encourage. It will take time. Um, so we already said something about the CO2 emissions. Uh, I think a very important topic currently in, in Europe, but also in the Netherlands, as you probably uh, are well aware. Uh, how do you envision Europe's agricultural future? Yeah, this is a good one, uh, interesting one, really, because um, as many people know, the sort of the food supply chain accounts for a significant portion of greenhouse gas emissions, um, and obviously a very significant portion of global freshwater withdrawals. So it's clear, clearly an area that we have to we have to get right into the future. Now, there's already some subtle shifts going on. Um, demands for meats continues to rise in parts of the world, but there's also been a shift of what meats. So, so a shift from, say, beef to chicken over recent years, and chicken is healthier and cheaper, and things like salmon, also called the, the chicken of the seas. <laughs> and these two particularly have a significantly lower strain on the world's resources, and hence will will probably become very important sustainable solutions going forward. Mm-hmm. There's also been, as we know, an increase in the popularity of veganism and other sort of non-meat-based diets, although getting numbers around around that situation and the growth of that situation is quite tricky. You know, accurate figures are not really there. Um, but it seems yeah. that as attitudes uh, and tastes change, they are changing. Perhaps the strain on the planet caused by farming and, and food production may lessen a little bit into the future. However, the global population continues to increase um, and perhaps those changes in tastes and trends won't be anywhere near enough. So there are, fortunately for us, many other factors that mm. can be improved to take some of the strain away from the sector. Um, simply sort of tackling food waste is a nice, easy one, I suppose. Research and development into crop genetics or livestock genetics, pest management, improving farm equipment, you know, the list goes on and on. So, you know, it's not like we need to just, you know, give give up and go home. There's plenty of work being done, very significant work being done right now. The, I guess, to, yeah, if we want to make it a little bit more troublesome, um, there are other side effects linked to agriculture um, and they can be far, far wider and, and, and far well, more far-reaching. Deforestation is, is one. You know, deforestation releases carbon stored in trees and soil and obviously obviously eliminates the potential to store future carbon. And the majority of deforestation is coming for demand for agriculture or animal grazing. And then, you know, you go one step further, deforestation impacts biodiversity, um, you know, impacting some of the most endangered species on the planet. So, Um, it can also lead to changing in weather patterns. So, so you know, the, the list goes on and on. So fortunately, a lot of companies, particularly in Europe, but not exclusively, they're doing an awfully lot of good, interesting work, um, which should hopefully see agriculture becoming a little bit more sustainable into the future. Mm, good, to, good to hear that. Um, how do you view and also how do you deal with the older industries? I think you mentioned a couple of them already, um, metal production, concrete, cement, copper production, etc. Um, I think they're, they're equally important to the economy as they are polluting, probably. How, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, this is the really the really big question because, you know, you can't build a hospital without copper or steel, for example. So indeed, so steel is at the heart of many of the green solutions that we're all reading about or hoping for, you know, sustainable buildings or renewable energy or, or even recycling facilities, for example. So it's obviously we can't that we can't do without um, that industry at the moment in, in any, you know, in any world. So um, we need to keep that to the back of the minds. 
Now, in theory, steel is 100% recyclable uh, without loss of quality. And and although the industry is is very energy and carbon intensive, significant steps have already been made to reduce these impacts. Um, And as with all of these things, we just need to innovate and find cost-effective ways to lessen the footprints of all of the industries you mentioned. Um, And the reality is that a lot of the work has already been done. And I just wanted just one just to look at steel again. I don't want to just keep focusing on steel because the same argument applies to many of the other industries that you mentioned. Now, there's no argument from anyone within the, the, the steel industry or beyond that the production of steel is very energy intensive. Much of the energy comes from coal, which is, you know, is burnt to, to create the heat needed in the process, as well as some of the chemical process um, to create iron. Now, steel has been made for thousands of years. It's not new. And that that process has, over time, continually be refined. So we're seeing some great work being done now to replace coal with hydrogen, which can be done uh, very successfully on a small scale. And now we're seeing that work sort of ramp up to a more industrial scale. So the main barrier to cleaner steel and cleaner versions of the other, the other um, items that you mentioned really comes down to cost and research and development. Coal is still cheaper than renewable energy, although that gap is closing you know, almost daily. So if companies invest in R&D and innovate, then we can clearly make far cleaner versions and the old industries, as you called them, can become, you know, new industries. So, so you know, the future is not as bleak as it may seem. Good. Let's talk a bit more about how all of this translates into your strategy, uh, Paul. Uh, the goal of the NNIP European Sustainable Equity Strategy is to outperform the MSCI Europe Index. I'm just wondering, why not use the sustainable version of this index? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, the, the short answer to that is is up until now, our client base hasn't really wanted us to. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't really or hadn't really asked us to have sustainable versions of the benchmark. And, and personally, I've been really comfortable with that dis- discussion. And I'm coming from a slightly different perspective, I suppose. I, I've been involved in sustainable investing for the best part of 20 years. Um, and you must remember that while we talk about that style, you know, responsible investing, ESG, sustainable investing, whatever you want to call it, only a few years back, um, that style of investment was seen as a bit quirky or a little bit niche and always treated slightly differently by the investors who, who saw mainstream investing and then and then sustainable investing. Now, I and, and people like me were, were always keen to bring sustainable investing out of the shadows and into the light. Um, and to do that, it was important to stress to everyone that we weren't doing anything particularly different here. And we should be treated in exactly the same way as every other fund manager out there, i.e. use the same benchmark, have the same risk controls, that sort of thing. And as that message started to resonate, then um, us sustainability investors started to become a little bit more mainstream ourselves. And people began to realise that we weren't reinventing the investment playbook here. We're just focusing the mind a little bit more on certain areas. Now, having said that, things are starting to change again. And the Paris Agreement we, we talked about a moment ago Um, And other bits of regulation, particularly across Europe, means that many funds will need to have some more specific targets, particularly climate targets. And hence, you will start to see more funds being measured against Paris-aligned benchmarks. We're no different. Um, We're already doing the same with upcoming launches. And hence, we're giving our clients more, more product to help them meet their individual investment goals into the future. So I think you're right, probably the key funds that we have won't change to a, a greener benchmark in the short term, um, but certainly new product launches will will probably have 
but particularly Paris aligned goals. Hmm. No greener benchmark, but um, maybe you can tell us how you apply ESG in your uh, selection process. Yeah, um, the answer to that is we, we do it in several ways. Um, we start at the beginning by running um, a few negative screens on the investable universe, focusing on more controversial activities, tobacco, gambling, weapons, for example, um, as well as more controversial behaviours such as human rights violations. We nor our, our clients want exposure to these activities. Um, so it's a fairly, screen, a fairly simple ESG screening there. Then we use a, a proprietary tool, our ESG Lens, which is our rating system of choice for implementing ESG screening. Um, and it helps us introduce an additional level of discipline to the, to the screening process, which provides assurance to clients, consultants, regulators, and, and you know, any other stakeholder that adherence to investing in a sustainable manner is, is you know, really being conducted. We will avoid investing in companies that score in the bottom quintile of the investable universe. So we feel, feel this gives credibility to ensuring that the really bad actors, the real poorest performing companies from an ESG perspective, um, will be screened away. And that limits, limits reputational risk and, and hopefully provides alpha for a, for a long-term uh, investor. But finally, and probably most importantly, our ESG or investment analysts use ESG data, um, firstly, that we get from the lens, but also from elsewhere, um, and we try to make sure the material ESG risks faced by a particular company are accounted for in their modelling or their projections. This is often helped by engaging with the companies on those material issues to ensure that ESG is, is fully integrated throughout our investment process. Now, it's my understanding, Paul, that you use both backward-looking as well as forward-looking data in your investment decisions. What is the, well, and I think this this is probably fairly straightforward, but what is the importance of, of forward-looking data? Yeah, it's a good point. And actually something that, that is is thrown at, at people like me quite regularly, um, that actually if you rate companies and have a ratings methodology, it is typically backward looking. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, that's the, that's the case if you, if you buy an off the shelf rating from an external rating provider or indeed the ESG lens that I've, I've mentioned, it predominantly, um, uh, it's backward looking. Um, it gives us, therefore, a sense of historically how well a company has managed its its material ESG risks. But more important for us and for everyone else out there is to assess how the company will manage their future ESG material risks. Um, and we try to flesh out our knowledge in that regard. Now, mm. a lot of this is done by the analysts and our responsible investment team who meet and engage with the companies on a, on a pretty regular basis, really kicking the tyres with management on these and other issues. Um, and we try to get a more rounded view on the business that is not just backward looking. Now, we spend an awful lot of time doing this additional work, you know, and you wouldn't do that for fun. Um, we do it for a very good reason. I mean, we want to find tomorrow's ESG champion rather than yesterday's. Mm. And actually, from a, an alpha perspective, um, those companies that are improving, in my experience, can do an outsized role in, in your alpha generation for your clients. If you can find a company that is perhaps average at managing their ESG risks, but are serious about improving them over time, and actually they do deliver that improvement, the market perception of that company will change from perhaps a lower quality company to a higher quality company. With that usually comes a re-rating in the market. So if we can invest in companies like this early and hold them through that change and that improvement and encourage them on that journey, then we will hopefully benefit from that re-rating on behalf of our clients, which you know is clearly a very good thing. Wonderful. And, and, and obviously all of this with the long term in mind. 
Absolutely. So, Paul, what future trends do you identify as relevant for this strategy? Well, as we discussed at the beginning, climate and energy transition is certainly the theme at the front of mind for investors um, and clients across Europe. So everyone needs to get their heads around that if they haven't already. Um, As we already discussed, regulation is changing in Europe, particularly around climate. And some of that regulation is potentially quite wide ranging in scope, um, although the clarity of the regulation in some areas hasn't been great. But these two factors, climate and regulation, are certainly not going away. But more interesting for me, I suppose, outside of climate, things like diversity and inclusion are getting more and more news flow. And certainly our clients are are paying uh, particular attention here. And we're starting to try and measure and report where we are in our portfolios versus the wider benchmark on things like gender at a senior management level and, and through the business. The available data on other areas of diversity isn't great. So I'd expect that to develop over time into a more sort of tangible investment theme further down the road. Other social issues such as mental health and the general health and well-being of the workforce have been further highlighted by the pandemic. Um, And while some people, myself included actually, have really enjoyed the change in working environment caused by the pandemic, many, many, many others haven't. And it's important that companies take this very seriously and help those workers who've struggled uh, um, with work or or have lost their jobs or, or, you know, their, their financial situation has worsened. But mental health, as I mentioned at the beginning, was a very significant topic pre pandemic. And, and hence, it must be a really important topic post pandemic. Outside of that, biodiversity and the natural world are becoming really significant markets and investment themes, which I think will continue to grow. Data security is very real and very fast growing threat for all of us. And we need to get our heads around that. Um, water, of course, there are plenty of themes and topics to come and there'll be more that we haven't even thought of yet. But as the world changes and our client base changes and regulation changes, then it's important that investors are on their toes and, and are prepared for many, many risks to appear from around the corner. Thank you so much for being here with me today, Paul. It was a pleasure. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you. I would like to thank Paul Schofield for his time and his insights. This podcast about sustainable investing in Europe is offered to you by NN Investment Partners. It was recorded as part of a series dedicated to Fonts Event 2021. For more podcasts, please visit fontsevent.nl. And if you'd like to know more about sustainable investing and ESG investing, please check out the website of NN Investment Partners, nnip.com.